Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Advara in Conversation with podcast. We're going to talk about some exciting topics today, some topics I think are interesting and exciting, from cannabis and clinical research to data sharing and ownership with participants. I'm Luke Jelinas. I'm an IRB chair at Advara, and I'm joined by my colleague, Amanda, today. Thanks, Luke. I'm Amanda Higley. I'm also an IRB chair at Advara, and I'm excited to be on the podcast for the first time today. All right, let's dive right in. So I'm really excited, Amanda, that you're here because you have thought a lot about our first topic, which is cannabis and CBD and research. And so I think we want to talk a little bit about the use of cannabis or the investigation of cannabis and CBD and research. But before we did that, I wonder if you have any thoughts on kind of the broader societal context in which cannabis research is now taking place. We've seen sort of this great growth in research involving cannabis and CBD products. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on sort of why we're seeing that now and kind of where we're at as a society in terms of cannabis and cannabis research. Yeah, you know, I have lots of thoughts on this one. It's near and dear to my heart. I think the biggest driver here is that many states are now legalizing recreational and medicinal cannabis use. I mean, it's still illegal federally. So federally, it's still a Schedule One drug, meaning that they consider it to have no medicinal value. But various states, so 37 states have approved it for medicinal use, and then 18 states have approved for recreational use in adults. And there's other things that have been happening, too, with breaking apart kind of the psychoactive parts of the cannabis plant, like the Delta 9 THC from the other components. And then the other components have been made federally legal to use. And so even in states, like I'm in North Carolina, so even in states where cannabis use, recreational or medicinal is not approved, you can still buy CBD at like the gas station. So we're seeing this huge uptick in people being able to get it on their own, which I think is driving interest in trying to figure out what is, you know, the medicinal value of CBD, which is a very interesting story, I think. And then also just people are more interested in what's happening with cannabis, but that's taken up against this like federal still illicit problem. Did public attitudes evolve and change in relation to things we were learning about cannabis through like sort of rigorous trials and federally funded research? Or was it more sort of like a societal and cultural phenomenon that was happening apart from any advances in research, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a great question. So I really think it's more the societal aspects of it. It's the anecdotal, like, hey, this works for me because cannabis is a schedule one drug and meaning that the FDA or the DEA, they consider it to have no medicinal value. We don't see those randomized clinical trials of cannabis because number one, you're already telling me you can't use it. It's illicit. And number two, you can't patent it because it's a naturally growing herb product. Right. And so there's not a lot of research on that side of it. What we do see is like the academic research, but a lot of that came from more of the abuse potential and like, you know, ways to treat addiction to cannabis or the cannabis effect on cognition, but we don't see it so much with its medicinal value. So it's almost like you have this sort of cultural evolution and norms in the way that we view cannabis. And now the research side of things is sort of like playing catch up to that, or we're sort of finally at the point where we're like, okay, can we figure out more in a more sort of robust scientific evidence-based fashion, exactly what the medicinal uses for this are? Cannabis has been used for centuries. 
But back when cannabis was first used and people were using it more medicinally, the ratio of THC to CBD was more equal. And then as generations progressed, the ratio of THC to CBD started shifting. So it became a little higher in THC and a little less in CBD because the THC was the psychoactive part, the hallucinogenic part. But it became sort of widely accepted that CBD was probably what was driving the medicinal value and effects yeah. people were getting from cannabis use. So what do you think are kind of some of the challenges here, the big ones in your mind, in terms of sort of facilitating further research and kind of facilitating robust clinical trials or different kinds of research about cannabis? So for cannabis itself, like the entire cannabis plant that includes a Delta 9 THC, some of the difficulties are because it's still a schedule one drug to obtain it. You have to obtain like research grade cannabis. And you have to apply for that through NIDA or there's some other kind of requirements you have to do. You also have to have a special license from the DEA to be able to administer it for research purposes. And then we have issues from the IRB side, you know, with extra confidentiality protections because it is still federally illegal. One thing you mentioned earlier, which I find really interesting, is that you can ask sort of how much money is there to be made here from the development of cannabis products, as you said. It's not something that's patentable. And so we haven't really seen the big pharma, big industry, pharmaceutical companies kind of get in on this yet. I just was wondering, do you have a sense of kind of how good the federal government has been or how open they've been to funding research on cannabis and how open or not open DEA has been to granting the sort of licenses you mentioned earlier? I actually, so I do think the FDA wants to see this research. I mean, they have several guidance out asking for the research. I just think it's a little bit of extra hoops to jump through, but I do think they want to see it. I think you kind of touched on where we're seeing it come from though, is often like academic centers and not so much from the point of a large randomized clinical trial to look at it. And so I think that sort of hinders some of the, you know, moving it forward at a quicker pace. Funding is obviously a big deal. But there are quite a few studies, at least with cannabis, and they mostly come from academic centers. What we are seeing more, though, is this CBD side, which doesn't have these same requirements to obtain it from NIDA for the DEA license. But the difference with the CBD side of it is that it's like the wild, wild west as far as the regulations go, because yes, the 2018 Farm Bill was huge and legalized or made it not illegal to obtain, use, cross state lines, all those things for CBD. So now you can get it in all states and provinces, but they also have not approved it for any indication. So it's not a lawfully marketed drug. So then when someone is submitting a study to the IRB, looking at CBD for something like neuromuscular pain or nausea, or as a potential treatment for smoking cessation, then you're looking at, you need an IND for that as a drug, which is confusing, I think, to some submitters and even to some IRB members, because you can go buy CBD at your gas station, but it's not lawfully marketed. So I think that is sort of, it's confusing to people right now. For sure. And kind of related to that, I guess we're getting into sort of the challenges of reviewing it from an ethics and scientific perspective. One of the challenges, it seemed to me, is sort of the fact that there doesn't seem to be one standard formulation of CBD out there, right? So it varies in strength, might vary in administration routes, and of yeah. course that has implications for how you would study it. 
100%. And then it has, I'm not going to speak for the FDA per se, but I think one of the fears is that we don't know what it's grown with, what kind of toxicants are in it, all kinds of things. So then if you're trying to also look at it in a vulnerable population, like pregnant women, then yeah. you have a whole other set of creation concerns. I want to talk about a little bit about the ethical challenges here, IRB review. And I think we've kind of been dancing around them a little bit, but I wonder, we occasionally do review these and I've reviewed a handful of them. And one of the things that I've sort of noticed is that there is this uncertainty or uncomfortableness or IRB members aren't really confident in assessing the risk of these products. And I think part of the issue there is that they often seem to be evaluated in populations that are sort of vulnerable. I think we've seen studies evaluating CBD for things like sleep or alleviation of PTSD Mm -hmm. symptoms in military members, let's say. So that's a group who get PTSD or vulnerable. They might already have a number of medications that they're taking, so the polypharmacy issues. And now you're adding CBD or cannabis kind of to the mix. And we've had sort of robust debates about the safety of that and whether you, for example, need to have an MD present and part of the study team to be monitoring. And it's hard because, like you said, on the one hand, you can get sometimes these CBD products in any gas station. But on the other hand, that doesn't necessarily mean they're safe, especially in conjunction with other drugs. Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Some board members or just in general still have maybe the past kind of feelings of just like it's not legal, it's illicit, especially when you're talking about just cannabis in general. And so this idea that the risks are higher for a cannabis product than they would be for any other drug that we're seeing. And it's not to say it's without risk, but I think part of that is the empirical question, right? So we're trying to look to find out. I do think one of the biggest concerns that I've had with in board meetings is just this idea of like the potency and how does it compare from one study to another? And how are you ensuring that it's the same level of product throughout and those kind of things. And that may be something that is just not well explained to us at this point, but something that potentially the dispensaries are able to, to achieve. This is more speaking probably for a CBD product or, you know, something with lower THC. And I think it's a real interesting question to what extent users of cannabis products are still kind of run the risk of being socially stigmatized and whether that's something that research ethics boards should be worried about. I think there's been a big shift in that mindset. (laughs) I don't think we've reached like Canadian levels of acceptance yet. And I really do think that if we saw more research on it, I think people's mind assets would shift a little bit. I think right now we just don't know. We have so much anecdotal evidence and not a ton of empirical research to support it, like in clinical research. That's a great point. I mean, a lot of the hesitation probably just comes from uncertainty. Given what you've seen so far, are you generally an optimistic about the ability of cannabis to sort of be used in medically helpful ways? Or you sort of think the jury's still out on it? I think I'm past the naive point to think it's the answer for everything. I was doing my PhD work. I was looking at this one receptor for methamphetamine addiction. And I was like 23 years old. And I was like, I'm going to cure methamphetamine addiction with one receptor. And now we know that like, probably not, right? Targeting one thing doesn't work for everybody. I do think there is probably something there with CBD, but I think there's a medicinal value to CBD. And I would very much look forward to seeing more robust clinical trials of CBD. Yeah, interesting. Well, the future is exciting on this score and we'll see how things play out.
we're going to switch gears and talk a little bit about something that has been on my mind for a while now. I think we've probably all been hearing a lot about putting participants at the heart of research and really how do we sort of increase engagement with the public for research? How do we make sure that we're respectful of participants and we're building trust in the community? And one of the issues that's sometimes raised in this regard is to what extent or whether uh, participants should be provided with or have access to research data, to the data they generate in research and also the results of research studies generally. So I think we're at this really interesting moment where people are recognizing the value of data and starting to sort of raise these questions within clinical research. One of the questions here is to what extent participants sort of own their data and have a right to control it within clinical trials and what use it could be to them. So I don't know if you wanna kick us off with some thoughts on this general topic. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point. I do understand people's desire to own their own data or to see their own data. And in some cases, maybe compensated, like you said. I think when it comes to kind of clinical research and maybe even with what you described, there's something that makes me kind of pause a little bit in that providing people with medical data that they can't interpret because it's not validated or, you know, it's investigational or they don't know what it means could potentially cause some distress or worse, right? Right. I think you've kind of cut right to the nub of the issue here. So in medicine generally, I think we all in the last few years with the 21st Century Cures Act, we generally now have access to the information that's in our medical records if we want it, right? Most of us mm -hmm. can go onto a medical portal and look and see literally what information is in our charts, which we probably couldn't just a few years ago. And um, so in that respect, I think things have been changing, but Oftentimes, if you participate in a research study or a clinical trial, that information does not find its way back into your normal medical record. And so there's sort of this really interesting distinction that you just raised between data that's generated in a research study that is sort of validated in which we know how to interpret versus data that's generated in a research study that's uncertain. And so how do we think about the risks inherent in that versus the benefits? And I do think there could be some benefits. And I feel as though a big benefit here might just be might consist in showing respect for participants and say, hey, we realize this is your data. Even though we're not fully certain what it means, we want to at least offer it to you and have a conversation with you about it because it's yours and we want to acknowledge that. I think that could go a long way towards sort of building trust among participants and increasing sort of positive public perception of, of research. Yeah, I think if you could have that conversation, like here, look, this is what we found. We don't know what it means. <laughs> Here's what we think it means. You know, yeah. but, then I, but then that could really create a downstream effect, right? Like a cascade of events that could lead to increased medical bills and stress and searching for something that maybe wasn't really there. There's definitely psychological risk, right? There's anxiety that could come about. And I think the point you just made is a really good one. If you present someone with results that are uncertain, there's sort of a natural curiosity to know and to get to the bottom of it, which might in turn lead to further tests and more and more medical interventions when that really unnecessary, right? Yeah, be unnecessary. And I think that's a, a legit, legit worry and a legit concern. But there's also cases where there's uncertainty in other types of cases, too. And I'm thinking about sort of genetic sequencing. We have a pretty good idea at this point 
what the genetic bases for certain conditions are, like BRCA1 for breast cancer or mm -hmm. the gene for Huntington's disease, let's say. And there's just been this really interesting debate play out in the academic literature over whether we should be providing people or under what conditions with that information. And I think there's a sort of common sense feeling that we can't really do anything to prevent Huntington's disease at this case. We can tell you if you have the gene, but we can't do anything to necessarily stop it from occurring. So do people even want to know under those conditions? Do they have a right to sort of decline to know? And I think it's an interesting kind of thought experiment. Which way do you go on that? Would you, would you want to know? Oh, that's a tough one. I mean, I think if obviously anybody could get their whole genome sequence and find out, right? But if it's short of doing that, if you're in a study where it's done and you know that data is available to you, do you find out knowing that there's really nothing you can do? Right. Or and, do you just yeah. let it play out? I mean, I, you know, and I guess that's a personal decision. And maybe as, you know, IRBs especially, that is what we should be considering, letting a person decide. Because not letting them decide is sort of paternalistic, right? Like, <laughs> we're going to tell you you don't get a choice versus, you know. Yeah. I think it's hard for an IRB to say, no, we're not going to permit this in a situation where right. a researcher is willing to offer it and has the right supports in place. Yeah, you mentioned the right supports in place. And I think that is key. And what what are those? You know, what are the right supports in place? Like, what do you think they are? Right. So it's a great question. I mean, I think for, for genetic return of results, I think you need someone like a genetic counselor who has experience in conjunction with a physician or geneticist who has experience interpreting the particular gene or string of results and who can provide reasonable sort of next step recommendations about here are sort of your options and contextualizing information for you. I think those conversations should probably happen in person or over Zoom, right? I think that could go a long way. Like I would, I hate to think of these kind of sensitive results being returned like by a letter right. or in some impersonal way like that. And one of the other areas that we've talked about in the past, Luke, is this whole genome sequencing and potential return of results for vulnerable populations. So for minors or for those requiring an LAR and people who couldn't understand necessarily the results. Or in the case of a minor, someone who didn't have the chance to consent, you know. Right. Well, the, the minors is raises fascinating issues. Mm -hmm. And I know there's been some discussion of so that pediatric there's lots of pediatric biobanks, right? And you almost want to say, well, you know, you can go ahead and bank that material. If you find anything, should you recontact the child? Should you recontact someone once they become an adult, reach mm -hmm. the age of majority and say, hey, we have some results you might be interested in. I mean, it's so interesting to think about those situations. Like if you got a call, suppose your parents enrolled you in a pediatric biobank. And now that you turn 18, you get a call from that biobank saying, hey, we've got some results. Would you be interested in hearing them? Right. You'd be like, what? What are they? But then for on the flip side, there are parents, especially who have gotten so much valuable information. Oh, yeah. These rare diseases from pediatrics participating in these kind of studies. So. Agree. I mean, certainly this sort of genetic analysis has been incredibly valuable and helpful for therapeutic advances, I think. This has been a lot of fun. It's been great to chat with you, Amanda. You too. Thank you, Luke. It's been exciting. And thanks everyone for listening.